Hi, I'm Sam McAdam and welcome to Air Chats with Air Max. Today on the show we welcome an absolute gentleman, a former British Airways captain who flew 747s for the majority of his career and is better known for a remarkable aviation event. We welcome to the show Eric Moody. Hello Eric, welcome to the podcast. Absolute nice to be here. Pleasure to have you. What I wanted to know is a little bit more about you and where your aviation journey began. Well, I was born in 1941 in the middle of the Back to Britain, or just after, I suppose. And uh, I was brought up down in the south of Hampshire, and my granny had a farm, not far from where I'm now living in Romsey. And uh, I used to go up there as a kid, up to the age of three, and I would stand on a hill in one of her fields, watching the dog fights out over the Southampton docks where the bombers would come in and they... Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I told my mother at the age of three I was going to be a pilot. Okay. And I kept that ambition until I was eight when, with my father, I met a group of BOAC pilots, flight engineers, cabin crew and everything that lived in a block of flats in Southampton. And I liked the sound of their life. And I thought, now I'm changing my ambition. I'm going to be a BOAC captain. And I nearly just made that because I got a command on the VC-10 in 1976, 75, 76, just on the chain. So I wore a BOAC wings and captain's uh, regalia for, the, well, for this few years that I was on the VC-10 from 76 to 80. And just after that, because of this British Airways nonsense, you know, they brought the two companies together, BOAC and BEA. And BEA stood for back every afternoon, and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to go away around the world. And I won't tell you what BOAC stood for, but uh, it was great fun, and it was everything I wanted. But in the build-up, I got to the age of 19, and the College of Air Training at Hamble started, because... I would have joined the Air Force on a short service commission, but they became harder and harder as you got to the end of the 50s, 1950s. I missed national service by a few months. So this College of Air Training started in 1960, and I was in fact one of the first people to be interviewed to go there. I got accepted on the first intake ever, but within two weeks of my joining date, I got a letter telling me that I was medically unfit, so they wouldn't take me. So uh, we had a hell of a job to try and find out what was wrong, what they were saying was wrong. And it turned out that this thing in the middle of my face here was crooked. It went one way or the other, I'm not sure which. And do you know, we couldn't find a surgeon anywhere who would straighten it. Because of the, my age, I was 19, I think, at the state. Mm -hmm. And uh, because your body goes through this metamorphosis every seven years where you know things change and bones set and they thought it was so slight this kink in my septum that if they did it did anything to it they would make it worse so i i found a doctor a doctor in the end a surgeon in the end who said if you're 21 when you're 21 i'll have another look at it and have a look so i waited and on 7th of june 1962 I was 21 so I knocked on his door again and said please sir you said you'd straighten this when I was 21 and he he, he said I didn't actually mean that day 
So uh, anyway, I had a little battle with him. And by the, in the end, I ended up in hospital in that October. I had local anaesthetic and I was squeamish as hell. I laid on this slab for oh, nearly two hours when he scraped this about. And it, right at the end, he said, um, well, I think you might feel this, Eric. And then he said, hammer, nurse, chisel. And he, I did. I felt that for about 18 months on the roof of my mouth. So when somebody said to me, you weren't very keen to get into this job, I don't think they knew what they were talking about. No. I wanted to do it. Uh, by that time, I'd learned to fly. I'd learned to glide at 16 at school. And at 17, I got a thing called an RAF flying scholarship because we had a combined cadet force at my school. And uh, they gave me £350 to go away. And with that £350, in 1958, nine. 58, 59, something like that. I got 300, I got uh, 30 hours. You wouldn't get that now. You'd probably get, get two hours now. Mm -hmm. That's 350 quid. Uh, and uh, I got a PPL when I was at school, before I had a driving license, in fact. Brilliant. And uh, I've loved flying before that and ever since. Uh, I just uh, wanted to do it for a living. I think it's the best way to earn a living possible. Yeah, I could have done lots of other things and I didn't. Oh, good. Um, and just out of interest, why would that have impeded your ability well, to fly? Well, what they were saying was you were having a medical with BOAC to, and you had to prove to them that you would be fit for 28 years. Okay. And quite honestly, I think it was a load of bunkum because I got turned down for my deflected septum. Somebody else got turned down on the same thing. And I can tell you why they did it, because he had ingrowing toenails. So it, they got down to the stage where they started a new college at Hamble. They knew they wanted 42 people a year. And so they said, they actually went to Oxford and Cambridge and said, look, if you wanted to guarantee 42 people with A-levels and all that sort of exam nonsense they had in those days, I mean, why do you want superhumanly fit people that read the Telegraph and they've got, you know, so many A-levels and O-levels. and they, You want people that can fly bloody aeroplanes. That's what they should have been looking for, but they weren't. Uh, but they said to Oxford and Cambridge, the universities, how many people would you select so that you, you're catering for people that don't pass exams? And they said, oh, if you want 42, you need 50. So they selected 50. But then they found that they selected 50 people that already had all the educational qualifications. So they didn't, they had then to find some reasons to get rid of eight. And I was one of those. So it's like nitpicking, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. Um, but you were determined. No, well, I was more than determined. I, I, you know, you tell me I can't do something, I'll only well do it. Um, well, I'm pleased you did. And then in, well, in terms of aircraft types that you flew or got to fly, yeah. uh, what, was the, what was the first and how did you build up oh. to your Well, I learned career? to fly on hornet moths, tiger moths and chipmunks at the Hampshire School of, Avia, School of Flying, they were called in those days, Hampshire Flying School at Eastleigh Airport, Airport, which is where the Spitfires used to first fly, grass airfield with uh, had three runways marked out and lots of potholes at, at uh, just north of Southampton. Mm -hmm. I learnt to fly there one summer holiday when 1957, 58 it was, yeah, the summer holidays. I was 17 then, so it's 58. Okay. Yeah. And um, hornet moths, I first soloed on a hornet moth 
tiger moths and chipmunks they had there and we did them and I kept my license going and uh, had to do that of course on the odd oster as well. I did keep it, I kept my license going right the way through till I actually went down to Hamble in 62. Uh, I kept it going, I used to do enough hours a year and I loved, uh, I just loved those little aeroplanes. And that was self-funded? Well, except for the, the start, which was um, the government paid for. Uh, yes, I self-funded my, uh, myself through those uh, few years. Delivering newspapers mainly, I did. And okay. Working in a local shop. Then at, at Hamble, we had chipmunks. So I had a bit of a start there for the first 250 hours. And then we did 50 hours on a twin. The Apache we had, which is a Piper Apache. And then I was BOAC sponsored all the way through. I'm a, I was a BOAC mentality. I wanted to fly long haul, long distances. I would have put BA1 on my bag for seven days, BA2 on my bag for seven days, go home then for a week or so. That was my idea of the ideal life. <coughs> so we get to, uh, I went down there in the August of 1962 and um, Actually, the funny thing was, having had this operation, I wrote back to BOAC and said, look, you told me my nose was crooked, I couldn't come. I've had it straightened now. Can I come to Hamble now? And they wrote back and said, well, you have to do the um, selection again, medical first. So one cold January morning in 1962, I, I went with my present wife. She was my girlfriend then. We went up to Heathrow and I walked all the way across from the north side to the BOAC Medical Centre. And it was in a, it's like a Nissen hut they had. And uh, it, was, it was quite a good story because we went in, it was bitterly cold and I had this uh, nose that was a bit raw still because I'd mm -hmm. only had the operation in October, November. And we got to the BOAC medical place went in. It was like the tropics in there, it was beautiful, hot. And I'm a hot weather person. We went in there and eventually I get to, in to see an infamous doctor called Dr. Alan Sibbald. In anybody that flew for BOAC or in the airline business knew Alan. He was incredible. He could put 15 of the F word in a 17 word sentence and make sense. He was wonderful at it. Anyway, he was sat on the other side of the desk and he used to wear his glasses down there. And he was looking at some notes and he was effing and blinding like no mick. And I thought, well, I come into here. Sit down, he said. So I sat down and eventually looks up and he said, you've been through this bloody operation? I'll cut the expletives out. And I said, well, yes, sir. He said, look at this. And his nose was like that. I said, well, I had noticed, because I've noticed noses then, half of mine. And he said, I wouldn't have that done. Bloody painful, isn't it? I said, well, it's not very pleasant. And he said, and local anaesthetic crush, if you're that keen, he said, sit still. And he got up and walked out. And he came back with a bit of paper and he said, there you are. You're medically fit enough for us. Mm -hmm. He said, for 28 years, piss off and have a good life. I said, well, don't you want to look at it? He said, no, nope. nobody's looked at my nose from that day to this. So 
it was it was a it was a joke. Anyway, I went to Hamble, get to the end of my two years down there, passing out, and uh, we get a letter from BOAC. We're awfully sorry, having sponsored us all the way through that. We got no no uh, vacancies for pilots for the foreseeable future. Oh, I said, but but we managed to get you jobs with BEA. So you've got to go, haven't you? So we go off to this short haul company called British European Airways. And I got put on the Vanguard. And up and down Amber One from London to Heathrow, London, London, sorry, London to Edinburgh, London to Glasgow, London to Belfast. Occasionally you get a, a weekend down in the Med, down to Gibraltar or Jib or something, to Jib or to um, Malta. So it wasn't much fun. But it was a job and it was flying. And this was in June or August 1962. Beginning of 1963, the first week in 1963, I'm not married then, but we're getting married shortly. Through the, my uh, door on the Friday evening, the flight magazine comes and there is a half full page advertisement BOAC requires pilots I wanted to be one yeah? so I wrote off and said look I was sponsored by you I've only been left Hamble six months I want to come ah they said we'd love to have you but we've got a no poaching agreement with BEA well I didn't want to go to BEA in the first place I want to anyway we had a bit of a battle there were 41 others and myself 42 of us that were working for BEA wanted to go to BOAC and I think in the end they got so fed up with us that they said if you work out the summer with BEA in the autumn you can come to BOAC or it will transfer you and on October the 31st 1966 I worked for both companies for the day uh, and I got paid twice. Lovely, lovely. Well, you don't do that very often. Anyway, I then got, I wanted to go to the 707. Okay. No, you're going to the VC-10. So I went to the VC-10. And then you have to train to stuff a sextant out of the aeroplane and shoot the stars and be a navigator as well as a pilot. So there's another little course to go on. But I did all that and I had a very pleasant a few years on the VC-10 until 1970 when the first jumbos came along and that came along I thought that's a lovely looking aeroplane it's nice and big and uh, I wanted to fly something really big and uh, I thought I'll have a go at getting on that well it was no problem because nobody else wanted to go on it it was a very junior uh, set of first officers went on that to start with but I was uh, one of those in 1970, 71-ish, beginning, I went on a course and uh, that, I went, then was the first officer on the first, the Mark, well, the 100 series. Well, why, do you th why do you think people didn't want to tra well, transition to that particular aircraft? Pilots are very, very conservative with a little C and they don't like new types, lots of them don't. And certainly there was an ageing first officer they were all senior first officers because that BOC hadn't recruited for years and we were the first in. So 
it was it was really good to get on that aeroplane very early. I loved it. The first few years on the jumbo, you learn a hell of a lot because a lot goes wrong. And certainly with that the 100 jumbo, the Pratt and Whitney engines were absolute rubbish. And uh, you know, if you could do a trip without an engine failure, you were doing well. And in those five six years from seventy to seventy six, I had twenty three engine failures on the jumbo, 18 of which were catastrophic engine failures, went off with a big bang. It was blooming good fun, I tell you. It was marvellous. That's one way to describe it. It was. Well, you know, and you learn so much when these things go wrong. Well, we had six aeroplanes to start with, and at one stage, all six were marooned between London and Johannesburg, because they were all down the route with engine failures, and one had been sent out with one attached to... You know, and no, they'd all. It was quite a joke. I loved it. It was was a mystery tour. Oh, sorry. What would you say was the the main cause of the The engine failure? Just because they were poorly built. They were. They were. The the material was dreadful in them. They were Pratt and Whitney, and they kept falling apart. And there was obviously an ongoing dialogue with Boeing, and uh, yeah, yeah, and the airlines to say that this problem. They didn't have many engines in the world. That you know. You had the tro- trouble to get a, a spare engine because they have, they pull these engines all over the place, as you know. And uh, yeah, the Boeing with, with the Pratt and Whitney JT9D, whatever it was, the one hundred uh, jumbo was very under-engined. So you weren't very keen on the climb rate. No, the climb was dreadful. It was nearly a ne- negative climb rate. I mean, if you took off from Heathrow and you got out over. Strumble out over the Welsh coast. If you got to 28,000 feet, you were doing very well. Going across the Ogden, yeah. But it was great fun. I loved it. So I had five, six years on the PC-10 before that. And I went to first officer on the Jumbo. And then they said, right, we give you a command now in 75, 76. And I bid to go on a command on the, on the uh, 707. No, I couldn't get on that. They gave me one on the BC-10. So then I did four years as a captain on the BC-10 when I got back onto the jumbo. And by that stage, there were 200s jumbos with four Pratt & Whitney JT-9Ds. And that was two years before this thing out in Jakarta. Which would be good to talk about, obviously, because that's how I first... <laughs> Yeah. Came, well, came across you. I'm really. just amazed that it's still talking about it now because it happened on June the 24th, 1982, at 13.44 GMT, the first engine stopped. And here we are, 40-odd years later, still talking about it. And I thought the, the interest would last about six months. And do you get tired of talking about it? No. No, because it, it's kept, I think it's kept my feet on the ground. One or two of the crew members, not the pilots or the... Uh, my engineer, I'm careful what I say here, but one or two people have had mental problems around the thing. Uh, and I haven't. You, you're I, referring to like post-traumatic yeah, stress? Yeah, I remember that. Yes, I, yeah. Could, I could engineer that if they'd like me to have a dose of post-traumatic stress. I'm a bit cynical about the whole thing, personally. But to me, counselling is a kick up the arse and a pint of beer. And this and worked for well, you. It does, yeah, because you—it's up here. You've got to get into it. I needed to carry on flying. I loved it to bits, 
and uh, I was determined to get over it. I just didn't want to die. That's all at the time. That's all that went through my mind. I'm not going to die. There's quite a lot to unravel here, and I thought I'd, <laughs> I'd start with the um, me being a 12-year-old, yeah. and it was my uh, first family holiday, long haul, wide body, and you know, being a boy that's fascinated with aircraft, I've yeah. I've said to my dad, I guess like ma- many people have asked these questions, if we lost all engines, what what would happen? Just in tr- just intrigued <coughs> yeah. by that, uh, and usually you'd get an un- uneducated response. But he had um, a case study for this particular question, and it was it was your story. And that's when I was twelve years old. That's when I first heard mm. about this flight, and it's fascinated me ever since. And actually, to sit down here opposite you well. is an honour. Um, <laughs> and, and it'd be great to hear from takeoff in, in Kuala Lumpur how this all unravelled. Yeah. Well, it was uh, a normal flight. It wasn't really. I suppose we were. We were a crew. We, we were together because normally the flight deck and the cabin crew would go on different rosters and you'd lose them somewhere. But we'd stuck together since out of London on this particular occasion. We'd been from London. I think we were in Rome and we'd been to Bahrain and we'd been to, I think we'd been to um, KL. Somewhere. Anyway, we'd been together for a few days and we were in fact coming back together almost to London and it was so unusual uh, that we were really a crew and we'd been in KL for a couple of nights I think or one night and um, we had 16 cabin crew members with us but while we're in in, uh, we come from India I think and, and while we were in KL three of my cabin crew went sick with whatever you want to call it, deli belly, jippy tummy or something. They, they got the runs and uh, they were sick in KL. And I decided that we would operate light on the cabin crew. We had 13 cabin crew members there. We had 12 doors on a jumbo, I think. And so we had enough people to man all the doors. And I said, leave them here and let them, they can catch up with us because we were going back to, to Singapore. We were going to Perth, back to Singapore, and um, they could have come down and meet, met up with us when they were feeling better. That was the way I'd worked it out with the company. I'd been on the phone and I'd worked all that out. So we knew we were only ha- having 13 cabin crew. And because of that, I'd rang the airport, which is unusual, and I'd said, OK, put all the passengers... There were. They'd said there were about 250 coming through, as they know on the book load. And in fact, we had 247 passengers. So I said, put them all downstairs. First class in the front, as it would be. But we'll have no... And at that stage, that jumbo was set up to have a, an economy cabin upstairs. And I'd said, uh, right, put all, if anybody comes in in that cabin, put them all, move them all downstairs. So we've got nobody in the upstairs cabin and therefore we don't have to have a a cabin crew member up there. Uh, Just the three of us up on the flight deck. And so that's how we started. So it wasn't a normal sort of sector. We'd had a bit of discussion about it. But because fuel was cheap in KL, and it was dear in Oz, I'd filled the thing up to the gunnels so I could have gone forever. Had a full tank of fuel, 
and we set off and it was all very very normal uh it, the airplane came in half an hour late and that had a big a big uh, uh effect on what happened to us because if we'd taken off half an hour early we would have missed the volcanic eruption but as it was we were half an hour late we took off and it was a very calm night we took off reached up for the sky and uh, climbed up to 37,000 feet directly even with full tanks it was a beautiful airplane and we set off across the routing was KL to down to Sing overhead Singapore across the uh, Jakarta or Straits of ja Jakarta where it's Java Sea to overhead Jakarta and then in a straight line from Jakarta down to Perth in Western Australia and it was forecast to be a fine night and it was wonderful anyway we got up there got into the cruise usually I would do a few crosswords so I probably did had something to eat and it got to the other side of Java and everything looked normal and uh, I said I need an, I'm going to the loo I need a leak I got out of my seat went to go in the loo at the back of the flight deck and there was somebody in there so it had to be either a first class passenger had come up or one of the cabin crew so I thought well I'll take this opportunity I'll go downstairs and see how they're getting on with the service killed two birds with one stone and I went to the bottom of the stairs the purser at the front was a lady and I said to her how are you doing she said well I'm all right sir I've finished I put all my passengers she said they're tired because think this airplane had come through from London she said they're tired they want to go to sleep so they're all asleep and I've sent my the two that work with me I've sent them down the back to help out because they're short staffed I said well that's a good idea and I said, how are they doing down there then? She said, well, the club passengers are all fed and watered and they're being bedded down. But down the back, there's a group of about 110, 120 Kiwis and Aussies that have been together on a tour around uh, Malaysia. They're intent on destroying their brain cells and they're going to be having a party. I said, no trouble. Oh, no, 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 no trouble. We can cope. And I had a wonderful CST on it. He's poor chap's dead now, Graham. And I knew he'd cope anyway. Anyway, so I said, well, if you want me, you know where I am. And I went to go in the loo. And with that, the stewardess that had been in the upstairs loo had come out and gone on the flight deck to see if they wanted anything. And they'd, they'd sent her to get me. And I was still at the bottom of the stairs, all ready to go in the loo. And she said, I want you upstairs. So I went upstairs. And the first thing I noticed coming round what I call the skirting in the upstairs uh, lounge cabin area, where the air conditioning air comes in it was billowing in smoke and uh, I mean I might not be able to smell much but I could smell this rather acrid electrical burning smell and it was very char characteristic of how the tubes in those in London smelt in those days it's not like it now because they've uh, they've obviously used different brake linings up there or something but this was characteristic of that but I went on the flight deck expecting them to say we've got a fire or smoke in the electronic space, we fire the fire extinguisher, but uh, nothing was further from the from that at all. I went in and they said, "Come and look at this; it's beautiful." And they were watching on the windscreen a wonderful display of St Elmo's fire. Now I've seen St Elmo's many, many times in my career in all sorts of uh, places, on the ground at London in the fog up in the air but if, if St Elmo's is quite an attractive thing to watch and it, it can manifest as just shimmering lights up and down the windscreen 
but on this occasion it developed into short lightning dashing up and down the windscreen. And it was multicoloured, which it isn't normally. There were all sorts of colours around. And it was, so we were, were watching them, it was a wonderful display. And as I'm sat sitting down, you know, you're doing everything you can to look, to, to catch up. And I'm watching this wonderful display as well. Uh, and uh, that's when it all started. And the flight engineer says, um, engine failure number four engine. And it wasn't like a normal engine failure, because in the four or five years I was a first officer when these engines were bad, I'd had 23 engine failures, of which 18 have been catastrophic, gone for the Big Bang. So I thought I knew what an engine failure was like. But it's nothing like that. This engine was just winding down, slowly. And it took, it, you had to convince yourself it was running down. I mean, he was on it like a... Shark, and he was very, very clever. He was a training engineer. He was bloody clever at picking out a, a duff engine. I sat there watching it as the first officer, and it wasn't until we started to yaw slightly, because obviously two engines going on one side or the other, we're going to yaw, and the ball in, on the turner bank thing goes out to one side. You know that you're in fact sliding, skidding. So I put some rudder in. And, kicked it up and we, that's how it all started. We shut down number engine number four. We shut it down. We shut it down properly as that was on fire, as we always did. So that was your assumption at the time was? Well, no, he said it had failed. And, but everything else happened very quickly after that. Within 30 seconds, all four had shut down. They'd all four run down. So how does he react to that? He's a, tra well, he's, he's a trainee. Yeah, and he says he's a training uh, first uh, captain training engineer, and he said, well, number two's gone, number three's gone, and something like, oh, goodness me, we've lost a lot. But under, under stress, one's vocabulary does become quite limited, you know. It's uh, not easy to, not to swear. Well, uh, I think you'd be forgiven for swearing <coughs> in that situation. Well, we <laughs> um, and, it's, and it's obviously unravelling very fast in, in well, front it of was. you. It all happened within 30 seconds, that happened. Yeah, I'm picturing this scene where you've got a bit of smoke, yeah. then you're watching this beautiful yeah. display of St Elmo's fire, um, and then suddenly all the engines have gone, yeah. um, and that's happened within 30 seconds. Yeah. Um, what then? Well, we, we're the proud possessors of the world's heaviest and largest glider. That's still a Guinness world record? Well, it went in there, and I, I don't know. I've not seen anybody beat it, but they don't repeat these things. I think if something is difficult to repeat, beat, they don't keep it going. If it, uh, they don't want anybody to do it, do they? And it, and it wasn't intentional. Um, <coughs> no, it certainly was not. And so, Eric, you're you're the captain, um, the decision maker. Really, you're mm. trying to assess this situation. You didn't know what was had causing no, we this. We had absolutely, utterly no idea what's going on. It's dark, it's black, there's no moon. Mirror out of stars, but there is no moon. So we don't know what's happened. All the engines have stopped. They don't do that. And uh, training up to this date would dictate... Um, well, luckily, BOAC, in their wisdom from the early days of the jumbo, from the beginning of the jumbo, had practiced a four-engine failure drill. It was in the air. It, I mean, I think it was done tongue-in-cheek, but we used to do it once every so often in the simulator as part of the annual checks and things that you do. Um, it would come up maybe once every two years. 
and they're doing it more regularly now, I think, still. I'm sure. <laughs> but, um, it, I mean, I'll be honest with you, it was nothing like the simulator, the real thing, because things we were told would happen didn't happen, and things we were told wouldn't happen did happen. Could you so give it's me... very confusing. Yeah, sorry, just interested to know what, what an example of that would be. What well, were you expecting uh, to happen that didn't? Um, there were all sorts of things like, we were told the first thing that would happen because there would be a complete power failure, which there wasn't, would be that the autopilot would drop out. And if the autopilot drops out on one of those uh, jumbos, the klaxon would go off so loudly you couldn't hear yourself talk or think. This thing would go, ah, ah, you know, very, very loudly. And that didn't happen. The autopilot stayed in. So, you know, if you're a logical sort of person, that's very confusing. All the engines are stopped. We're supposed to, we look across on the engineer's panel and there was a total, a total electrical failure indicated. It was on the panel, yet the autopilot had stayed in. There were lights coming on and going off that weren't supposed to and were supposed to. It, it, you know, it's, um, it's hard, I mean, 40 years later, it's hard to remember exactly, and I'm sure I'm missing things out, but the big thing to me was the autopilot stayed in. And so I thought to myself, well, don't be a bloody idiot, use it. And I, that, that gave us an extra pair of hands. That was great for the first few thousand feet of descent. I used that. I used it to turn off the airway because we're going to descend, unscheduled descent. You don't want to keep going straight ahead because if something's coming the other way, down lower, you 10 to 1 you'd hit it. <clears throat> so I turned off the airway with the, with a heading knob and I wound in a descent to keep the thing at flying speed. And we had to fly it between 250 and 270 knots indicated. I knew that. <clears throat> so. I made sure I was doing you know, enough descent to keep the speed at 250, 270. But at the same time, if you've got no power, you know that there's only a limited amount of time that you can be well, doing that. Yeah, but you, it's not a panic situation. I'm so, sorry. So you, no. were, you weren't panicking at the time? No, no, because you've got, you've got uh, 37,000 feet of altitude before you hit granite, or well, depending how high the granite is, but I knew I was 29,000 feet and I was coming down at probably 1,700-1,800 feet a minute. Um, and I, I'm, I'm conscious not to put like a Hollywood spin on it, but <laughs> I, I mean, for, for me, it's, it's, picture, yeah. it's picturing an aircraft that has lost all its engines and it's a 747 yeah. and it's got passengers on board. Yeah, but you, you, what you forget is the only four inches of flesh on the airplane I'm concerned about is that. They're the most valuable four inches of flesh in the world, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, so you, you, you can discard the rest of it. So it's just you, me, fight or flight, yeah, and you've free trained. I imagine the previous 100 series engine failures maybe helped a bit. No? Uh, yeah, uh, any, I mean, all your experience helps. I've been flying them for a few years. I'm, I was 40, 41 years old. I was cross because if it had happened two weeks before, I'd only been 40 in the newspapers. But I was 41 years old then. Uh, and uh, I had a few years of experience. 
But I didn't want that to happen, thank you. And it, and it, it, and it didn't. And um, did the situation of a turn... You, you said... It, was, it, it wasn't a time to panic for you. No. But it was critical. Absolutely, yeah. And was... Because it was happening so fast... No, it, it wasn't... It, the glide down is quite uh, slow. I mean, you can see... We weren't expecting anything to happen above 30,000 feet because Rolls-Royce, and they were RB211s, Rolls-Royce had said, um, it's no point in trying to start these engines above 29,000 feet. They won't start. But we'd been encouraged and taught in training to try from the very word go, from the time of the top of descent. And we were at 37,000 feet and we started the procedure right away. So we did as we'd been trained. But on the simulator, when you do that and you get down to 30,000 feet, all of a sudden, as if magic, the engines all start up. It wasn't until we got to 30,000 feet that I'm sure a lot of it kicked in. We thought, bloody hell, that hasn't happened as it should. Hmm? So it, uh, we, uh, we weren't really in a panic mode until, I suppose, no, we didn't panic at all. But when you get to 30,000 feet or 29,000 feet and nothing happens, then you've got to start thinking a bit more about where you, what you're going to do, because perhaps they won't start. And at what stage do you think that kicked in, the plan B or contingency? Well, I mean, we, we, we got down to, uh, well, after the first couple of starts, I was thinking, and, uh, you know, I had a, a debate up in the training with the Jumbo, the first in 1970, 71, over in Shannon. I had a debate or a chat over a pint of beer with the then chief training pilot. And uh, I've always maintained you need to employ pilots that think. And, of course, then the management think was, no, no. You want pilots that do things by rote. Because if they do things by the checklist all the time, you will get the least number of accidents. And they are speaking, because airlines now aren't run by people like me, aviators, practical aviators. They're run by accountants. And they think about the bottom line all the time. And I think they're wrong. I think you need pilots that think. So I, was, I started thinking straight away. And I thought to myself, we're daft. We're only trying to start three engines because we'd shut number four down fully. It would never start. We'd cut off the fuel and we switched off the ignition and everything. So I thought to myself, why don't we reinstate that engine and we've got four chances instead of three? So I said this to the other two and my first officer says, that's a bloody good idea, Eric. But the, the training engineer, because in the book it says you shouldn't do that. He said, no, you not. I said, bugger the book. We're doing it. And that was, that was quite relevant because later on, that engine, the first one we shut down, was the least damaged. And it was the first one to start. But we were down at 13,000 feet before that happened. Yeah, so... It does pay to think, in my book. And you won't ever convince me it doesn't. 
I'd, I'd have to agree because I've... Yeah. So I was thinking about it. I was thinking about what to do. I knew, I, I knew we were heading back towards Java, but I knew there was high ground along the west coast of Java, about 10,000 feet high, where all these volcanoes... I didn't think about bloody volcanoes at that stage, but I knew there were a lot there. 10,000 feet was probably the safety height. And I knew then we could come down to about 12,000 feet on that heading. And then we'd have to turn out back to sea, which would give us a little more glide if we hadn't started the engines. Yeah, but um, so I knew what I would, I planned out in my mind what I was going to do and where I was going to turn and things. And now all I had to do was execute <coughs> what we were supposed to do, keep the thing flying. And the only way to keep it flying is to keep some uh, height or airspeed. And, yeah. Our father... Who aren't in heaven, you know? Um, I'm sure many people did. Uh, but you make it sound like it was not a problem, more of an inconvenience. Well, it, it, was, a, it was a bloody inconvenience. Um, and I'm sure that thinking through it made me able to cope with it. I mean, had, we had no idea why those engines had stopped. And that was annoying me. Why didn't we know? And we didn't know. But you don't want a post-mortem in the air. You have the post-mortem when you're safely on the ground. It, the first thing I had to do was to get that aeroplane somehow back on the ground. And if we could, get the engine started. Because you, otherwise we were in the sea. Uh, and you did, before we get to the ground, um, I did want to ask about your statement, your announcement. <laughs> Yeah, well, because I, yeah. you've got a, a kind of unofficial award of the understatement of. Yeah. Well, the fact is, I was trying to get the attention of my chief steward, because the intercom, the intercom on the aeroplane or the telephone system wasn't working, and I didn't know if the passenger address was working, but I thought I'd have to take a chance because I couldn't get in touch with him anywhere else, so I wanted to get the attention of my chief steward. And I got the attention of the world's press, I'm afraid. Yeah? And, you know, they've died out on it more than I have. <laughs> um, so, well, I was, I was just... Well, you've got, look, you're going to talk to 247 passengers, and there were 16 crew there as well. And, I mean, they, I didn't know, but they knew that we'd, the engine stopped, because what I didn't know was my chief steward was on the flight deck when they all stopped. I didn't know that. But he, he'd been downstairs and told them all but not the passengers. So if you've got 247 passengers, I think you could easily get a panicky mutiny if you said the wrong thing. So I thought to myself, you've got to sound as though you're very laid back and quite laconic and uh, you know, say what, something you'd normally say. And I've always been honest. I've always told people exactly why you're delayed with me or late. There's no point in the, in the bunkum they tell you about, you know, we've got do this. You've got to have an engine failure, say you've got to have an engine to, uh, change or something. You know, don't try to uh, sweet talk them out. You can't do You can't get through life like that in my book because I'm a Hampshire boy and uh, I believe in uh, telling it as it is. And so I thought, well, I'll say good evening, ladies and gentlemen, to Captain, or Captain Eric Moody again. We have a small problem. In that, all four engines have failed. We're doing our utmost to get them going. I trust you're not in too much distress. And the thing I wanted to get across was, would the chief steward please come to the flight deck? And if you fly on British Airways and you ever hear that, 
it's it's a good cause then to worry about where you're going to put down in the sea or on land because that's the that's a cue to the cabin crew to put stuff away and get ready for a ditching or a crash landing fascinating and i think even more so because you're dealing with the incident but you've also been able to assess what you're going to say and and to uh, to reassure people, really, mm. um, which is which is well, it's done. You know, my wife often says, "Oh, well, you're a man; you can't do." Being a pilot, you have to be able to do six or seven things at the same time, honestly, and do them well sometimes and cope. This is to do with men and multitasking, yeah. I assume. Yeah. Okay, um, but I, I actually discussed it with my my wife as well, and she said if she had been a passenger, it's obviously easy to say from the sofa yeah. rather than an aircraft seat, <laughs> but that it would have reassured her because it, well, the calmness and professionalism. Well, you've got to try and do that. And it, that and was, it, and that it was, was my intention, you see. Well, you didn't have a mutiny. Um, <clears throat> no, oh, we, there was one lady, in fact, one Australian lady did, in fact, scream at one stage. Her husband slapped her face in true Australian fashion, and that was the end of that. That was the only sign of panic in the whole incident from what my cabin crew told me. Um, so everyone's, I wouldn't say relaxed, but kind no, of waiting, no, no, no. To, waiting to see what, what happens. Um, and you did restart the engines at what, well, what altitude? they did. The first one started about 13,500 feet. So they all started around there. But what I think it was, and we didn't know it, of course, it was like a comic book bubble coming out of this volcano. And we'd gone in up there and we turned the wrong way, but it was the way you did in there. No, and now you've got a choice. We turned to the left off the airway and I think we came into the ash that had drifted and we came down. And I reckon we came out of it about 15,000 feet. And I could tell you why uh, in a moment, if you like. But we came out at 15, and we had a couple of thousand feet of clear air going through these engines. And of course, we were still trying to start them, or the engineer was, and they started up. Uh, number four was the first one that we shut down. That was the first one to start. And that was on the outside of the turn, so it probably had least uh, ash in it. Um, and it wasn't bad, that badly, da- it was that badly damaged. It wasn't that badly damaged. And um, number four started, then number three, then number two, then number one. And number two and one came together uh, about a minute or so after the other two. There was another, there was four started, then about 30 seconds or so later, number three started up. And they're they're not making tremendous power, but they're, they're winding up just as slowly as they wound down. And then two and one came in with a gigantic roar like they do on the simulator. These two started up. Uh, very silently. These two started up like the simulator. Whoosh! And we're back on four engines. <clears throat> and that was the whole thing from start to finish of no engines, or with from the time the first engine failed to the time the number four start, the, the fourth one started, was 15, 16 minutes. So we glided down until we had 13 minutes of no engines at all. 13, 40 minutes. But, you know, we'll never know what it was exactly but it's something like that <coughs> and we were around about 13 13 12 the lowest we went was 12,000 feet but that but you've lost 
You've lost more than, more, than, more than half your, your, your height oh, uh, initially. Yeah. Um, and, you, and you didn't know you were going to restart the engines? No. You were planning no. for... Oh, yeah, I, I was planning <clears> to go out and ditch into the sea. I had no way we would have lived through that. That was it. We were dead. Um, but we got down to 12,000 feet with four engines going again. And we were able then to re-talk to... Uh, resume the conversation with Java. And we told them we were there and they said... Please, could you climb up to 15,000 feet? Because the heavy, the high ground is shielding you. We can't see you. So we climbed up to 15,000 feet. And the St. Elmo's fire started again. And that's what made me say just now, I think we came out at 15,000 feet. Because the St. Elmo's, obviously, was associated with the volcanic ash. And <clears throat> I said, we're not staying here. And I pulled the, end, the thrust levers back to descend again to get out of it. And with that number two engine began to backfire or surge is the technical term, where the gases start to come forward through the engine instead of going backwards. Mm -hmm. And there's a little great flame shoots up by the captain's ear, but when number two, and there was a boom boom when this went, and this did rock the aeroplane. <clears throat> it was a, there were violent surges. And I think I let three of those go. And I said, I'm not letting this, that's gonna be shut down again because I was afraid it was going to shake itself off the wing. It was that violent. Okay. And so, uh, really, that was the only violence in the whole of that glide, was this surge. We shut that down. By now we're down, we're over the airfield at about uh, 13,000 feet. And um, so five engine failures in 20 minutes, I think, is another world record, you know. One you don't want. Well, I've got it. Um. <laughs> And 40 plus years later, it's, yeah. we're still still talking yeah, about it. Yeah. Um, it's obviously a bit of time has passed since that's happened. Yeah. Uh, do, you, do you ever get bored of talking about it? No, I don't. And I'm sure that that's kept me sane over the whole thing. But the thing that it was the most, I thought, skillful the whole lot was the actual approach into Jakarta when my windscreens were opaque. They were absolutely, you couldn't see out the front at all except down a two-inch strip down the side of the windscreen. And I didn't discover that until late on in the approach. But, um, yeah, we, we, that was a real team effort, that approach. My first officer was calling out every 30, 40 feet he called out. The engineer was monitoring that. We had three engines going now, only three. And he was monitoring that, keeping his eye on it. But he was, he was under pain of death to move those thrust levers because those engines were well I knew they were damaged they were unstable as buggery I think that's a Hampshire term yeah uh, and um, yeah we, we got it on the ground and the last hundred feet I sat back in the seat because I was sitting on the edge looking around here I slipped into the seat and the airplane landed itself it was beautiful it kissed the earth and uh, yeah and then we had to be towed in because, you know, we couldn't see out the front, couldn't do anything. Um, and the aftermath of it all, was there a, was there a sigh of relief from you? I don't know. Or? Well, of course, from us. Well, we, but we still want to know why these things had failed. And well, we didn't find out, really, for two days. Oh, that used to, but there, I there, no idea. It hadn't been reported that no. a volcano had erupted. No, no. Oh, no, it was going to take days for that to happen. I mean, we're talking about pre- um, pre-satellite phones even, pre-mobile phones, no, 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 that sort of nonsense. You people now are spoiled rotten. We are. I mean, our son 
No, he talks to his family from all around the world. We used to have to book calls from India and wait probably a fortnight and then you'd not be in your room and you'd miss it. I mean, it was, in those days, it was so expensive. You didn't do it. We used to write letters, my wife and myself, between if you were in Singapore or in Hong Kong. And the postal service was so good in those days that if you posted it in the afternoon in Singapore, it would be here in the first post the next day, wow. delivered. So we used to communicate like that uh, back in the earlier days. And we were nearly out of it. We were just beginning to be able to afford phone calls in 82. But you didn't do it, you know, really neat. I mean, my lad picks up this... Uh, implement he carries around now and he can talk to his kids anywhere in the world it seems to me yeah it's come a long way but then so so has aviation but i th i thought that maybe other aircraft had seen it and no, had experienced no, no. Oh, the well, same it thing it was black oh well we had a smart ass air france caravel captain and he came on to find out what happened they'd heard that we lost all the engines and uh, he was, ha, 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 you fly through the volcano. And this was when we were on the ground, you know, and I thought, you smart ass, what do you know? And uh, he reckons it had been, well, I know now, this volcano had been erupting since early April. This was June the 24th. It had erupted various times in that time. But in June the 24th, 1982, it went up in a big way. But it wasn't NOTAMed. There were no mentioned on the NOTAM that we that we were to expect volcanic eruptions in that. But then let's be honest, that's part of the ring of fire. And I know now, because I've studied the problem a bit, there are, on that east, uh, west coast of Java, there are about 110 volcanoes, which are active, and no volcano is ever extinct, because it can always erupt. But these 110, of which five, are active at any one time. If you fly down to that part of the world, there is residual volcanic ash in the air every night of the year. And they get some marvellous sunsets down there because of it. You get over northern Australia. It's beautiful. So there's a lot to be said for volcanoes. And you know, Mother Nature is, is um, yeah, she can't be thwarted. She's quite a vicious lady. And look what's happening now in the world with nature. And that's all volcanoes are. And look at those plates moving up in Iceland. They're beautiful to watch, aren't they? But you can't stop it. You can't fight it. No, it's a force bigger than us. It is. Um... No, it's made me feel very, very small and humble, that uh, incident, I must say. I was bloody lucky. We were lucky. I, I, I had a very, very good first officer and an excellent in flight engineer, and the pair, uh, three of us clicked. All bloody minded. Those two came from Yorkshire, where they notably. I'm very bloody minded from Hampshire. I tell you, if I say I'm going to do it, I will do it. You say an element of luck, but you uh, know, if a hell of a lot of luck. If it was someone sticking to the to the manuals uh, uh, and to the training, then it no. it would have ended potentially another way. Um, and you were you don't know, um, do we? Are on the ground then. Um, the passengers have obviously been aware of the situation. Do you have a, a meet and greet with them at any point? Well, I said to it was a, we landed in Jakarta, which was a. BOAC station at the time, or British Airways station, however, uh, it wasn't very well staffed. 
And the next day, they were having trouble with the passengers and London, and London don't understand, I'm afraid. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm cynical when it comes to uh, management of airlines, if you've got that picture, uh, because um, they, they couldn't run a hot bath. You know, they might be a cold one, but they couldn't run a hot one. Anyway, they, uh, the passengers in Jakarta were very disgruntled. So the manager comes and says to me, sir, would you mind uh, coming and talking to them? So I said, no, I'll come and talk to them. I'll see what I can do. Uh, I'll uh, use my influence on what, I, what influence I've got. I'll try. I, he said, um, well, we're going to have trouble getting off in the mo- in, tonight. I said, look, don't worry about that. Oh, I tell you now, all my crew will come to the airport and my camera will come to the airport and we'll get them on tonight. If that's an aeroplane coming through. Great, he said. So I go off and British Airways were going to really be pillocks over it. They were going to send out one aeroplane and it was going to do this, that and the other. I told them, you can't do that. It's got to come tonight and it's got to take them, drop them where they want to get off. Because they've traumatised these people. They were, yeah, they were. And I persuaded the company in London, and they organised something that wasn't too bad in the end. And uh, we we went to the airport, but, oh, we went to uh, the airport and looked at the aeroplane in daylight to see it. And quite honestly, I couldn't believe it. It was stopped about, yeah, from, well, as far as we are from that wall, from the um, terminal building. And the, the windscreens were so bad you couldn't see the terminal building. They were absolutely, utterly opaque in daylight. So uh, I was quite pleased with what we'd done. And um, while we were there, the uh, station manager, I will not call him a station master, but the station manager um, got a phone call. Oh, sir, the British ambassador would like to see you. I said, and it was getting near gin and tonic time and I thought oh that's great I could imagine going to the embassy have a few tipples and I said but we're coming back and we're going to get the people on the aeroplane tonight yes anyway he takes me to the embassy and I, I shouldn't say it, but a silly old fart that was a he says um, uh, hey he said um, very uh, what was he said something absolutely stupid um so uh, we're very delighted that uh, you didn't crash. Brilliant. Uh, I said, well, we're not disappointed. <laughs> that was good of as you. One, yeah, as one would. Oh, no, he said, no, no, no. He said, uh, I mean, he said the paperwork, if you get a, a crash, is awful. I said, oh. And he said, would you like a cup of tea? I said, the last thing in the world I want was a cup of tea. Uh, I mean, if you offer me one now, I'd tell you where to put it. <laughs> I mean, I thought a gin and tonic was just what I didn't get it. So we went back to the hotel and I picked the, we picked the crew up and we went out that night about 10 o'clock. The aeroplane came in and uh, we got them all on, not a failure. But I said then, just bring me some wine and some beer and I'll get them all on for you. And we did, every single one. They thought we were going to fly them, mine, but... Uh, you stayed a couple of days We more. stayed there a couple of days and then we went up. Oh, we had, they sent, British always sent out a an investigation team the next day. They sent out a TriStar pilot, not a jumbo one, so he knew bugger all about jumbo. Anyway, that's the sort of cock-up they make. And they did the inquiry themselves, yeah. But I was going to say, we were half an hour late out of KL when I started this off. 
Do you know, if we'd been through that airspace half an hour earlier, we'd have missed that eruption. Because there was an aeroplane leaving Sydney, a British Airways one, and it gave me the picture. They were given, in those days, they were trialling um, satellite photograph of the, of the weather area, of the weather. And they were given it. And out of where we were in Jakarta, where we hit the volcano, there was this conical shape coming out of the, the hill. And they learnt from that photograph that to catch a volcano erupting, that was the footprint. So they learnt a hell of a lot, you know, they didn't know. And now there's a, these VAACs all over the world, you know, that when there's a volcano going off here, there. And on my iPad, I've got a little app just for interest. And every day it goes tinkle, 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 and it's volcanoes erupting. This volcanic uh, uh, volcanic ash air advisory system or something. VAACs, they're called. Volcanic ash advisories. So do you, do you know quite a bit about volcanoes now? I, I've learned a little. And you, and you obviously didn't have any interest in volcanoes before. Not a thing, before. No. Well, no, only, no. No, I didn't. So a lot of things have happened because of that half an hour difference. Yeah. We wouldn't be sitting here today having this discussion, no, we I wouldn't. doubt. I doubt. But you've asked me more about it than some of these so-called experts ever have. They didn't want to know. You know, I, I knew more than they did because I'd done it. Yeah. And that's been disappointing to me that uh, my knowledge has not been used at all. I'm sorry to hear that because... Well, absolutely. I, it's stupid. I, I did actually want to know how involved you've been in maybe safety procedures. Or... Only, oh, none at all. Not with the airline. I've had people within the industry who have interests, want, want to, have been very good, uh, volcanologists, one or two. Some don't. They're just as bad. I don't know what gets into people that they... They want to be experts in their own field and they don't like it if somebody knows as much or more. But then I could never understand. I can't understand people wanting to be managers in these businesses. You know, I'm sorry. It's uh, why do they do it? It's, it's odd. They're um, odd in my view. I think I've, I had a, a preconceived idea because of the miracle on the Hudson when you look at that, oh, yeah, that yeah. story yeah. that you have... A, a lot of input thereafter. I bet he hasn't. I've never spoken to him. I don't want to. I never have spoken to him. Uh, but I doubt whether I've had anything to, any input since then. He seems to be a very bitter pilot. Uh, and I can only assume that I know why, but uh, I wouldn't say too much. I mean, all I know is that when I retired, I know that on my file was written, this pilot is difficult to manage. And I've won. I've won. You've, you've won. And I think those that have failed to benefit from your experience and mm. knowledge are the ones that have missed out, in yeah. my personal oh, opinion. Yeah. Because I've been fascinated with this story, like I said, since yeah, I was 12 yeah, yeah. when I first heard about it. Um, and there's a lot you can bring yeah. to the industry. I, I did get a Queen's Commendation of a Valuable Service in the Air. I've read that. I've read very little because yeah. I didn't want to know well, too much. No. Well, that was a gross under honour in lots of people's eyes. And probably, well, I like to think, I'm arrogant enough to think it probably was. 
I think that was worth a bit more than that, up the scale of, uh, if, well, I don't know what medals are for or awards are for, but uh, yeah, you can get that for long service. So this one you received was, sorry, it was? The Queen's Commendation for Valuable Service in the Air, and it's a low, very low honour, it, it's below the BEM, British Empire Medal, which is the lowest. They give that to the gardeners at Wisley or somewhere. You know, I'm not I'm not demeaning gardeners at Wisley for a lifetime, but um, and and it was presented to you how by the by the no court, Lord Lieutenant of the County. You don't get to see anybody. I I just think the whole thing was, yeah. Let's give him something. Kind of like he's done, he's done his job. Yeah. Move move on to something yeah, else. Yeah. Whereas actually it was miraculous. Yeah. I'm getting the glory now, all these years afterwards, from people. And I really don't mind. It's quite pleasant. Well, I, I hope people watch that. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's. it's uh, I know that uh, people have tried and things, and uh, yeah, yeah, lots have happened years got since. I've enjoyed it. Best interview? Don't don't say this one. Um, but um, I'm really. I don't know. I don't know. I know. I mean, my wife in her uh, what's it box has got a, a film contract what we've signed. But whether that will come off, God only knows. Was that recent, the film contract? Well, we've, we've re-signed it recently, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I, you see, I would it, like to see the film well, made. There's been uh, documentaries and things done. But no, it's only a... Look, from the time it started, the first century, from the time we were on the ground, it was only 40 minutes. It takes me much longer to tell the story than it did to happen. Well, I'm glad, because um, <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Uh, I'd like to see the film made, regardless of how... Because yeah. I said I didn't want to put a Hollywood spin on it. Yeah. But if there's a film oh, made, there, there will be that, some yeah. drama. Of course. Um, and I think it will actually give the story and you what it deserves, you know, some proper recognition. Yeah. Well, I could have been in... Uh, where's that thing that Harry's in this week? Harry who, in sorry. Prince Harry, he's got been... I, I try not to follow where Harry, well, where Harry is. He's been... Oh, some big... It's, it's the... It's in uh, over in California, and I know that one journalist I got involved with over there tried to get me into it. The and uh, that because I'm not. Was it like a film festival? Or no, a, well, it's, or a, it's a, a um, not a museum. I can't think of that sort of thing. He's inducted into some hall of fame, right? Yeah. And he tried to get me into I know they did because I did some work for NBC. And uh, no, they, they didn't want me because though the story was the sort of thing they want, I'm English. And I don't live over there. And, you know, it was going to cost them money to get us over there. And so it's, um, it's a joke. He, they've done it for publicity. And he's uh, now got an award as a hero of aviation or something. Yeah, perhaps he is. I'm not the queen, and I can't. No, I no, can't no. issue awards. No, but, no, no. She um, didn't do it, did she? It was. It comes. It all comes through British Airways management. They yeah. decide. Oh, we're suing up something, you know. And uh, every uh, the whole crew got one. No, just just you, myself, and the chief steward got exactly the same. And you've and you've remained in contact with the rest of the crew. Is there uh, like? Well, a... quite honestly, we were in. 
a departmental store in my little town of Romsey only last week and Pat was paying for something across the counter and I stood there with my mind in neutral and I heard Eric Moody and I turned around I didn't see didn't, and it was the husband of one of the stewardesses on the crew I met him 41 42 years ago hadn't seen him but he, he knew me and uh, they lived up the top of Hampshire and they were just down there for the day shopping and uh, just bumped into you just, just into like you. that but other than that I mean we get Christmas cards from some that's lovely and there is a book out about it from oh yeah well, one of the passengers 85 that was all four engines are filmed by Betty Tootle but it's been out of print for years you can buy it um and you, you had a you had a large involvement in in the book well we all three of us on the flight deck wrote our own stories and she edited them that's what it is and there's not there's a lot of rubbish in there that some of the passengers have said about but you know I think she made a few. She actually married a, another passenger in the end, whose who's, uh, wife died, and he's dead now, and she's at, uh, getting to the end of her life. Well, I am, I'm 82, 83 this year, and uh, I'm rather pleased. I've had still, a wonderful Still young, still young. 42 off, years more than I was, yeah. Off to South Africa soon. Yeah, yeah, we're going to South our grandchildren, you know, you've got to do these things. Nice, wonderful. Like this conversation, it's been absolutely wonderful speaking to you, Eric. Thank you very much yeah, for your my time. My pleasure. It's Brilliant. been my pleasure.